Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Today on the program, I will be interviewing Graham Russell of RightsAction.org, and he'll be talking about the military coup in Honduras, Canada's involvement, and why it's significant to international politics. Mitch Podolik will be interviewing Eric Schrag on the important work of the Workers' Immigration Centre in Montreal. Mitch will also be bringing us Music is the Weapon. We'll have the alert headlines and Around the Left in seven days as well. Headlines for the week of October 27, 2009. A scathing Amnesty International report has accused Israel of denying running water to 200,000 Palestinian families in the West Bank and Gaza. The Amnesty International report paints a picture of many Palestinian families struggling and often failing to secure enough water for drinking, cleaning, and agriculture while Israelis have all they need for lush, irrigated farmland, swimming pools, and gardens. It claims the 450,000 Israeli settlers who have taken up residence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem consume as much as or more than the 2.3 million Palestinians living in the West Bank. Per capita, Palestinians are restricted to 70 liters of water per day, while Israelis consume over 300 liters. In related climate change news, Canadian climate activists disrupted the House of Commons on Monday, calling on Parliament to pass a bill setting out deep cuts in carbon emissions. Six people were reportedly detained, and the police beat at least one protester. The protests followed an international day of climate action held on October 24th to demand all governments address the seriousness of global climate change. More than 4,500 events were held in 173 countries. The so-called 350 protests drew their name from the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. Current levels are at 387 parts per million, while climate scientists agree that 350 parts per million is an acceptable level. In Puerto Rico, tens of thousands of workers marched through the streets of the capital, San Juan, to protest the layoffs of nearly 25,000 public employees. Marchers converged on the streets surrounding the largest shopping centers in Latin America. Demonstrators flooded the eight-lane avenue stretching for a half mile and spilling over onto an expressway. The march comes after a massive round of job cuts led by Governor Luis Fortuno. Over 7,000 public workers have been laid off this year, with another 16,000 job losses on the horizon. There are an estimated 225,000 public workers on the island, about 17% of overall employment. An election monitor who helped catalog fraud in Afghanistan's August election says tribal elders in southern provinces have already reported that officials are preparing to rig the November 7th runoff elections. The claims came as the International Crisis Group warned that without an overhaul of the election process and action against the most senior perpetrators of fraud, the vote rigging would be repeated. The government has rejected demands from Mr. Karzai's opponent, Abdullah Abdullah, that the chief electoral official be fired and three ministers suspended. Mr. Karzai has said allegations of fraud were widely exaggerated by the international media in the first round, while his supporters have said an anti-fraud inquiry, which cast out a million of his votes, was a politically motivated attempt to humiliate him. 
Zimbabwe's Prime Minister Morgan Zangeri and President Robert Mugabe met yesterday for the first time since the breakdown of the unity government. A spokesman for Zangeri's Movement for Democratic Change said the two leaders remain worlds apart. The political rivals formed a coalition government in February after signing a power-sharing deal. The agreement followed disputed elections marked by violence. However, Sangeri pulled out of the unity government two weeks ago after a senior member of his party was arrested on terrorism charges. Other party members followed the boycott and stopped attending cabinet meetings. The Canadian government is unveiling a major reform package for national pension plans, including greater guarantees for pensioners. Finance Minister Jim Flaherty will unveil the much-awaited federal reforms for pensions prior to appearing at a House Finance Committee. The reform packages affect the 10% of private sector plans that fall under federal jurisdiction, such as plans at Air Canada and the two major railways. The reforms include increasing the amounts plans can be overfunded, from the current 10% to 25% as a safeguard against economic and financial disruption. Critics say the reforms don't, however, cover the vast majority of pension plans that are under provincial jurisdiction. They continue the proposed plan doesn't deal with the problems that arise when companies declare bankruptcy, putting the unfunded portions of their workers' pensions in jeopardy. The Global Hunger Index 2009 has found that increasing women's literacy levels significantly reduces the numbers of people living below the poverty line. Ensuring that women finish primary schooling could reduce the proportion of people living in poverty by 33% in countries where women have low social status. The report, published this month, also found that equalizing men and women's status, especially in education and health, would reduce global hunger levels. South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa have the highest levels of hunger as well as the highest rates of gender inequality. While some countries such as Malaysia and Tunisia have made progress in reducing hunger levels, the report found. Global progress remains slow. The report calls for strategies that invest in women's health and education to help reduce gender inequality. And those are the alert headlines for the week of October 27, 2009. And now around the left in seven days for the week of October 31st to November 7th. On October 31st, the University of Toronto will host the annual Racism and National Consciousness Conference. This year, the focus is on the issue of land and its relation to the struggle for freedom and human dignity. The keynote address will be given by the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, Omali Yeshaleta, and will focus on the issue of African liberation and the need for a pan-African national consciousness. Other issues to be discussed include the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela and the countries of the Indian subcontinent ravaged by capitalist imperialism, militarism, and genocidal state terror. The conference is held at the Westmore Hall at the University of Toronto on Saturday, October 31st. The Joy of Gender is a multimedia presentation by Herschel Russell, a trans man who is a psychotherapist, educator, and activist. On November 6th, Russell will host a workshop at the University of Toronto that will include the Joy of Gender presentation, as well as group exercises, film clips, and a question-and-answer period. Topics include Disrupting Gender, The Opposite Sex is Neither, and Policing Gender, Who Does It? The workshop will be held at the Centre for Women and Trans People at the University of Toronto on November 6th. 
The 7th Annual Rethinking Marxism Conference takes place November 5th to November 8th at the University of Massachusetts. This conference explores the various aspects of Marxian theory through panel discussions, paper presentations, and films. From November 7th to 11th, at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver, the World Peace Forum Society is hosting a teach-in teach that examines the events of that decade and the lessons it provides for our current situation. The workshop begins November 7th and will feature plenary sessions and workshops hosted by speakers from across North America. This forum is held at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver from November 7th to 11th. On November 5th, activists in Toronto will gather at St. James Park to demand no more band-aids or bailouts for the rich, arguing that the effects of the economic crisis have been the salt in the wounds of the poor and barely noticed by the wealthy. There are four demands. Affordable and accessible housing, decent wages, status for immigrants and refugees, and justice for First Nations. Meet at St. James Park at 1.30 on November 5th to pressure the government to recognize the needs of the poor. The Global Justice Film Festival runs November 7th to 8th in Winnipeg. The film begins with a special screening of Playing for Change, Peace Through Music at the Winnipeg Art Gallery on November 7th at 7pm. The film explores the powerful connection music has with people all over the world. All films on November 8th will be screened at the University of Winnipeg. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined today by Graham Russell. He's the co-director of Rights Action, a Canadian nonprofit group that has been involved in Central American issues, uh, particularly in Honduras. Welcome to Alert Radio, Graham Russell. Thanks for having me on your program. Thanks for joining us. You made a presentation today at the University of Manitoba on the military coup in Honduras. So um, before we get into that, I'd like to ask you about Rights Action, uh, your history in Honduras, and uh, what you've been doing down there. Uh, Rights Action, as you said, is a not-for-profit organization. Um, we have legal status in Canada and, in, and the United States. Our main office is in Guatemala, and our history in Guatemala goes back to the 1980s, uh, and then the work we do in Honduras goes back to 1998. So we've been there for about 11 years. And Rights Action does two main things. We raise funds in Canada and channel these funds directly to grassroots organizations in Honduras and Guatemala that are carrying out their own community development projects, their own community human rights projects, their own environmental defense projects, putting up health clinics, running their own schools, etc. We are directly supporting community-based projects. The second part of our work is we focus a lot of education and activism work on how the North, Canada, and the United States have often caused a lot of the problems in countries like Guatemala and Honduras, whether it's through supporting military regimes and repression, whether it's imposing the free trade development model, which is uh, ex exactly the opposite of what the, the poor majorities in Honduras and Guatemala need, whether it's the actions of Canadian mining companies down there, we do a lot of education and activism work around the north-south element uh, of the issues in places like Guatemala and Honduras. Well, let's get on to what is going on in Honduras. What is it important to concentrate on from the perspective of rights action? Well, your listeners may or may not know, but there was a, a military coup in Honduras on June 28th. 
And it was a very simple affair. It's brutal. It's nasty. But this was a, uh, the military, in, in collusion with the oligarchic elites of Honduras, deciding that they don't like the elected president uh, of Honduras, President Zelaya, and saying, we're going to throw this guy out and we are going to um, put in our own leader. So this is old school, brutal politics. This, for, for Hondurans, this takes them back to the 1980s when their country was dominated by the military, a U.S.-backed military regime that was very repressive. Well, I heard you earlier saying that simply in the 80s, the bad guys won. Can you explain that? The, yes, because t- the coup on June 28th of this year is not happening in a vacuum. And as I was just saying, and as I said earlier, the, the roots of it go back at least to the 1980s. And that's when the United States, as, as some listeners may well remember, was backing military regimes, very brutal military regimes across the Americas. And perhaps worst of all in Central America, like in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And so the U.S. all through the 80s and into the early 90s was backing a very brutal military regime in Honduras. Um, and basically, the bad guys won. I mean, it's a simplistic way of saying that the United States backed all these brutal regimes. They killed, in Central America, they killed hundreds of thousands of people or disappeared, killed and disappeared hundreds of thousands of people, including many in Honduras. And by the end of the 80s and into the early 90s, no justice was done. The, what we saw in the 1990s was in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, very unjust countries left in place. The oligarchs were in power with the militaries, even though they had these formal transitions to democracy. And so the coup in Honduras today that started on June 28th of this year is sort of almost like a direct continuation of the type of regime that the U.S. was backing there in the 80s and early 90s. I wanted to ask you about uh, the aspect that um, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, you said that there were mild reforms happening under President Zelaya um, that set off a few progressive alarm bells. But, but tell us what you think it was that actually uh, played or forced the hand of the, uh, the coup perpetrators, who I believe you said was the Chamber of Commerce? Well, the Chamber of Commerce is sort of the clearinghouse where all the wealthy elites Uh, of Honduras come together and discuss business. I mean, they're all members of the same clubs, etc. So they all know one another, but they also have their chamber of commerce. And so that many Hondurans just believe, yeah, they probably took the decision and designed the coup and made the plan in the chamber of commerce. And that's why it gets uh, referred to so much. But just a brief background is that President Zelaya uh, is a wealthy man himself, and when he won the elections in 2006, no one thought that he was going to bring about any kind of serious reform in Honduras. In, 19, in 2008, in early 2009, he just started to bring about some small but significant changes, like raising the minimum wage, like entering into oil, uh, oil and gas deals with Venezuela, which is much hated by um, the conservative right wings across the Americas, entering into health um, programs with Cuba. And Cuba, again, is the hated government of the Americas. But these were very good programs that he was, and, and, and business deals um, that he was entering into that were very good for um, the, the Honduran public. And then the straw that, but the, these were sending signals to the wealthy elites in, in, in Honduras that, gee, maybe President Zelaya, who is from the upper class himself, maybe he's, he's going in that sort of progressive direction. And then what he did is he he started supporting something called the National Constituent Assembly, which was basically the rewriting of the Constitution of Honduras, but with massive popular participation. They were not going to set up a committee of 
Supreme Court judges and lawyers who say, let's rewrite this thing. They were going to say, let's open a six-month process or a nine-month process and ensure that everyone in Honduras gets to sit at the table and discuss what kind of reforms they want in uh, a new constitution. This was something he was starting to discuss, and it's not something that would have happened even uh, over the next year or two. But the discussion was out there, and that put the fear of popular participation into the, the wealthy elites. And they, based on an accumulation of issues, with that being the straw that broke the camel's back, they decided to oust him in a military coup. And the reaction of the international community has been strong, and yet there's even contradiction, specifically if we look at Canada's reaction. Can you tell us about that, Graham Russell? The, the first thing the international community did at the, at the governmental level, I, I, I always like to distinguish between two international communities. One is the governments and the United Nations and the Organization of American States. And the other would be a lot of uh, uh, people who are activists, who are struggling in a globalization from below movement or another world is possible um, movement. Because I don't like to consider myself as part of the same international community as the governments of the United Nations and the OAS. But at any rate, the OAS, the Organization of American States, came out with, an extreme, with a unanimous condemnation of the coup and within five or six days came out with a OAS official declaration demanding the immediate and unconditional return of President Zelaya and his government to power. And so, unlike the, the coup against President Aristide in Haiti in 2004, all of a sudden you had unanimity in the OAS saying no to one more military regime, one more oligarchic-driven coup. The problem started after that, and Canada has played, on the diplomatic front, Canada has played the most conservative and negative role in the Americas in terms of muddying the waters. What I mean by that is that Canada still calls this um, uh, an illegal change of government and that we need to restore President Zelaya. But we now, four months have gone by, dozens of people have been killed, hundreds have been illegally detained and tortured. Canada has not condemned once the repression in Honduras. And at the same time, often in diplomatic circles and in public meetings, they will say, well, there was a lot of problems with President Zelaya and he's part of the problem and we need to take a step back and, and look at both sides when this is a black and white issue. This was an illegal military coup and there should be no waffling whatsoever. And so Canada, along with the United States to a certain extent, have really muddied the waters and, and weakened the international response. And can you talk about uh, why the Conservative government might have taken that position? Um, speculation, of course, but I, it doesn't, um, it's not rocket science to me. I think um, Canada is waffling on this position and trying to muddy the waters because Canada would have an ideological preference or an, uh, ec an economic ideological preference actually to the, to the coup regime leaders themselves, the representatives uh, of the, the, the wealthy sectors in Honduras, the oligarch, as the people in Honduras um, say, because Canada has some very, fairly significant economic interests. In Honduras, we have a number of Canadian mining companies down there, including Gold Corp, which is the second largest gold mining company in the world, I, I believe, second or third largest gold mining company in the world, which and has mines across the Americas. They have a huge mine in central Honduras. There's the textile maquiladora sweatshop industry, and Canadian companies like Gildan out of Montreal have, have um, huge operations, um, sweatshop operations in Honduras. And some of the small reforms that Zelaya was bringing about, the government of President Zelaya affected both mining and the textile sweatshop industry. On the sweatshop side, he raised the minimum salary, his government, from $60 a month to $100 a month. 
that we're, we're talking about people living in very extreme conditions of poverty. And he was taking the minor step of raising their salary by 40 or 50 percent. That affects the textile industry because it's labor intensive. On the mining side, uh, President Zelaya said our mining law, much of it's been found to be unconstitutional. He, says he put a moratorium on giving out more mining, mining concessions to companies. And so that was sending a message to the mining industry, wait a second, maybe there's some mining law reform coming in the future that won't be so favorable to mining law companies. So my speculation is that Canada, um, this government would have sort of ideological economic interest in promoting Canadian economic interest down in Honduras, even at the expense of what the people really need there. And so it doesn't surprise me that they're muddying the waters. Graeme Russell, you spoke earlier at the University of Manitoba and you talked about the popular movement in Honduras now, and you said that these events actually represent a success and that in some ways the perpetrators of this coup have shot themselves in the foot. Can you talk about why you take hope from what's happening in Honduras? Well, I hope I'm right. And um, I do take hope in what's happening in Honduras, though um, it's a very harsh situation. And so um, what I mean by harsh is, as, as I said earlier, dozens of people have been killed. Uh, hundreds have been illegally detained, tortured, women have been raped in jail, all under false trumped-up charges. Radios have been shut down. The only alternative media has been shut down. Um, organizations have been broken into, etc. It's a very severe, s- severe case of repression going on in Honduras right now. But what the, the coup regime and the oligarchs completely miscalculated was the response of the Honduran people. Even though it's not getting a lot of coverage in Canada, there is an extraordinary people's movement happening in Honduras. I mean, more Canadians obviously know about Tiananmen Square. And so people have the image of Tiananmen Square. And the reason we found out so much about it is because that, that was a people's movement happening in China. And Canada loves to hate the commies. We, hate, we love to hate the communist government of China. So there was this extraordinary people's movement in China that got huge international coverage. There's this extraordinary people's movement happening right now in our so-called backyard just south of of the United States and Mexico in Honduras, and it's not getting the attention that it merits in the media. But the coup regime leaders completely miscalculated this response. And in fact, the coup itself so enraged the Honduran people who are so sick and tired of the the military elites and the oligarchic elites um, running the show in Honduras very undemocratically, never abiding by the rule of law themselves, that they have come out into the streets of Honduras Uh, in numbers never seen before in the history of Honduras. And four months later, they are still marching every single day and and keeping the pressure on the illegal coup regime. It's success by definition. No one really knows how this story is going to end yet because the coup regime, while it has no popular support, it has the money and the guns. But there's a standoff happening right now. uh, And how it ends, uh, we don't know yet. Of course, Zelaya is in the country, in the Brazilian embassy. Can you briefly comment on that? Zelaya, they, kept, they kicked him out of the country at gunpoint on June 28th, busted into the presidential palace, shot up the house, um, beat up some of the, his presidential security guards, threatened his wife and his daughter, and whisked him out of the country in his pajamas at gunpoint on June 28th. It was something you wouldn't even imagine in a B-rate Hollywood movie. Um, since that time, he'd been he'd tried on a number of occasions to get back into the country. His position's been clear from the day one. This is an illegal coup. My the my government must be restored to power, et cetera, et cetera. 
On September the 22nd, um, he snuck back into the country. Uh, there's speculation as to how he did it. Um, doesn't really matter. Um, he had come to some sort of agreement with the Brazilian government that they would allow him to go into the Brazilian embassy in downtown Tegucigalpa and be a guest of the Brazilian government. So since September 22nd, now we're at the end of October, it's been over 30 days, he's been holed up in there, and the, the regime dare not go in because they would be violating the territory of another country, according to international diplomatic law. So they've got the Brazilian embassy completely surrounded. There's hundreds of soldiers surrounding it. There's chain link fences. No one can get in or out without going through a number of military um, control. Food can't get in and out, etc. And they're jamming the, the, the airwaves so people on cell phones inside the embassies have their phones cut off, etc. There's an incredible standoff. They're very isolated, but they're intact so far. And, and President Zelaya is in there with his wife, some members of his family, and 45 supporters. And meanwhile, they're broadcasting soap operas and cartoons on the national media in Honduras. Well, if, I, if I'm somewhat critical of the role that the Canadian media has played in not giving this story in Honduras due coverage, the role of the media in Honduras has been 100% propaganda, like outright yellow journalism, and not surprising because 95% of the media, television, radio, and print media, is owned by uh, the oligarchs and the coup supporters. And so they... It, you enter into a time warp. If you travel to Honduras today and read the media or watch TV, you're in a time warp. And either you learn that nothing's going on in the country or they're fighting leftist communists. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking with Graham Russell, co-director of right a- Rights Action, a Canadian nonprofit group who is involved in what's going on in Honduras. And I'd like to give you an opportunity now to tell Canadians and our listeners what they can do to support Rights Action. Well, it's to support the popular movement. I think all of our efforts go towards supporting the popular movement in Honduras. They've established, uh, there's, there, there's come together this ad hoc umbrella group called the National Front Against the Coup. And people from all walks of lives, unions, religious groups, church groups, women's groups, indigenous groups, campesino groups, teachers groups, they're all participating in this loosely formed um, umbrella group, the National Front Against the Coup. So all of Rights Action, and, and many of the groups that Rights Action has been supporting for the past 10 years or so in our work, they're all members as well of the National Front Against the Coup. So Rights Action is involved in sort of three elements of work. One is raising as much funds, funds as we can and channeling it directly to a lot of the groups that are in the National Front Against the Coup as they carry out their ongoing protest work, their ongoing organizing work, their ongoing critical education work, and, and then alternative media work. And so getting funds into their hands is a huge thing, and we're, we're getting donations from people across Canada and the United States, um, uh, tax charitable donations, to do that. The second main thing is, is getting international human rights delegations and accompaniers into Honduras. This is obviously not for everybody. Uh, it's, it, people don't have the capacity to, to, to travel like this, but on an ongoing basis, we are taking delegations down, and if people are interested in actually coming to Honduras on a short trip, they, we, we've just announced a delegation on our list, sir, for late November, and we will be um, leading the delegation. And the reason we want this is we want international, we, we want the international community there, not the governments in the UN, they're doing their own thing. We want the international people's movement there on the ground doing interviews, doing, taking radio, making radio programs, doing documentary films, taking photos, and coming home and reporting on it. 
And the Honduran People's Movement loves this international accompaniment. And then the third thing is that we have to keep the pressure on or bring pressure to bear on our own government so that it stops waffling on this. And so people should be, they can easily get on our listserv and then start getting the information on a regular basis from us and pressuring, everyone pressuring through their own MP. Go through your own member of parliament. Don't just call external affairs in, in Ottawa. And the point person on this for Canada is Peter Kent, who's the secretary for Latin American affairs under um, external affairs. But the point is to go through everyone's member of parliament and, and make this an issue that the Canadian government and, and, and politicians, whatever their party's in, need to be addressing. This is a public policy issue for Canada. It's a hugely important human rights and democracy issue for the Americas. And we need to pr let our politicians know um, where Canada ought to be standing on this. The website is www.rightsaction.org. Graham Russell, thank you so much for joining us today on Alert Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. September-October edition of Canadian Dimension is all about immigration. Here at Alert, we explore a fascinating Montreal-based organization, the Immigrant Workers Centre. We have with us on the phone in Montreal the president of the board of the Immigrant Workers Centre, Eric Schrag. Eric Schrag is the principal of the School of Community and Public Affairs at Concordia University. He's written a whole bunch of books on community organizing and community economics. Interesting guy. Here he is. Welcome to Alert, Eric. And Thank you. Tell us a bit about the history of the Immigrant Workers Center and when did it start and why you started it and who runs it and finances it and who are your clients. Give us a bit of a really rounded background of it. Okay, it's um, we're coming up to our 10th year, I think, um, in this fall or spring. It'll be our 10th anniversary, so we go back. Now we have a bit of history behind us. It was founded by, um, it's, there's sort of a story. There were two um, Filipino trade union organizers who were finding huge limits within the trade union movement in terms of organizing immigrant workers. And they met with um, a colleague of mine and me, and then two other people, and started talking about um, the possibility of setting up this center. They, the two union organizers, or now they're former union, they were at the time former union organizers, decided that it was to organize immigrant workers, one required a safe place where people could meet that wasn't in the workplace and where you could be more explicitly political about um, what you're doing. Right. And can, so you, can I answer one question? What, what's your background that you? Okay, uh, I, I. How did you uh, fit into this? Okay, I'm a. I teach at um, Concordia. At the time, I was just coming to Concordia from McGill School of Social Work, and for many, many years, I've been involved in different kinds of community organizing, from welfare rights, um, urban politics, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I had. Um, experience with, with doing that kind of work, and I guess that's why they approached me, because um, um, I had that, that interest, and we shared, um, as, we, as it turned out. You know, we, the, the center is made up of people who would be broadly sort of defined as, as on the left, um, but we don't necessarily all share the same position on the left, and we've created, a, I think, an environment where 
it's a place for left activists to work and engage and volunteer and with a consensus about what we're how we're going to work together even though we might not you know there's some anarchists it's, it's a non-sectarian system. approach to yeah it, it is non-sectarian well, so anyway um through one of the people who um was involved in setting up the center we had a contact at the Quebec branch of the Canadian Auto Workers, and we approached him, and through their social justice fund, we got a grant of, of um, $25,000, and we ran the center for the first year and a bit on that money. Wow. Um, we found a small office and opened it, and, and just um, basically it started, and it started um, the first day someone walked in the door with um, a grievance against their employer, and we accompanied that woman um, through a process of um, of the norm de travail or labor standards board here, and that's how it basically started. And, and from there, we just moved forward in many different directions. Um, we we do a lot of individual work, and the way we get individuals to reach individuals, we have to do a lot of leafleting. So we spend time on the streets, either targeting around certain factories or particularly the buses and where people come and go to work. Are you talking organizing drives? No, we're not doing union organizing drives, but just uh-huh. as a way to reach out to people. So we'll hear, for example, that a factory's closing, and we'll go and leaflet in front of the bus stop where people come and you know go go from work so that we can tell them to come to the center. Um, if people we know from one person their grievance is in a factory, then we'll leaflet in front of that or close to that, stuff, that um, factory. Or we'll leaflet at um, bus stops and subway stations where workers are coming home from work. We're located in an area where there is a heavy concentration of immigrant workers. So, so if, you, if, you're not, if, you're, if you're not doing drives and you're leafleting, what are you leafleting about? We're, the leaflet more or less says, um, defend your rights, fight for your rights. Most of the people we work with are not unionized and probably in the current context not unionizable. We work with um, domestic workers. We work with laid-off factory workers, um, people in very small shops, for example. Wow. So we're dealing a lot with people who um, probably won't be unionized. So in a sense, you... We're you, not opposed to... And occasionally we've helped unions with, with union drives. But in a sense, are you, are you replacing uh, for, un, for unorganized workers the function and role of what unions might do? To help people? Um, in, in, well, we don't work towards collective agreements. We can't do that um, in that sense. But um, Well, I'm thinking health plans. I'm thinking you know, access. No, to, no, we to, don't do any of that. Mostly what happens is someone will come in and they'll be laid off and we'll help that, um, help that person contest the layoff, for example. Okay. Or um, we've worked on campaigns with, with domestic workers, for example, um, one day, a domestic worker came into the center, and she couldn't work anymore because of the health conditions in the room in which she was staying. Right. So we accompanied her to um, the health and safety board, and um, they told us that domestic workers weren't covered by, by health and safety in Quebec. So we've organized a campaign to campaign for the right for health and safety uh, domestic workers to be covered if they're injured in the workplace. And, and are you building a campaign around that? So we built a campaign around that. We got support from unions and community organizations. We got 70 or 80 groups to support the campaign and the demands. 
Um, we've met with the minister. I think we're going to win the campaign. I mean, Good. there's a commitment of the minister to move forward on it. We'll have to, you know, we'll see when it actually happens. So we work on on issues like that. Um, what are your What are your more more recent campaigns like? What do you what Well, are you up to the, this this campaign I told you about has been ongoing for the last several years. Yep. One of the main campaigns we're working on now, and it, it's kind of complicated, is um, and this is. Sort of a, there's a process through which we work, and that was someone came in and to the office one day and said, "I got laid off from from this company and um, and didn't get any compensation, and I worked there for 15 years or whatever his story was." And we always then say to somebody, "So are there other people in your situation?" And from that individual worker, we ended up with meetings of 60 or 70 from that company who had wow. been laid off and didn't get compensation as we thought they should have and we got um we put pressure on the minister of labor here and and we did get people to have a program although the program's completely inadequate and, and doesn't cover workers properly but at least we got them to recognize that these workers were um subject to a collective layoff so when you when you work with people when you work with people you've never met before like these people who were laid off and you run the campaign. What what is there a, a social political sort of aftermath to a campaign? Uh, are you do you have some place to take them politically? Are you trying to take yeah, them somewhere? Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's really hard. And, and the reasons it's hard is that people have to work, and their workplaces are often not standard workplaces. So yeah. it's hard to to find times and places for people to meet. Um, we're just starting a new program. We're into our our second session. Will be Thursday night. Um, uh, the leadership development, uh-huh. and we're working with some of the laid off workers um, from the textile campaign to help them learn to be organizers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's um, hopefully will have a longer term impact. We have a lot of people who come to the center regularly. Um, you know, we have educational events. We have cultural events. We do. Um, we have a May works program depending on the year. Some years it's a lot of things. Some last year we just did a big party. Well, that's great. That's yeah, a, it sounds like a fantastic place, and it sounds like the work you're doing is really good. Are there are there immigrants workers centers like this in other places in Canada that you know of, or is this well, there strictly Montreal community based worker centers? I think that's more. There's a workers action center in Toronto, which is similar to to us. They have more resources and are a bit bigger and have been around longer. Well, and they do a lot of a lot of work around temporary workers and things like that. So, is there is there interaction and people teaching each other that. lessons? And we're beginning that. And there's this center you have in Winnipeg called the um, Workers Resource Center, but yep. they mostly do individual work, I think. And we've met with them as well. In the United States, there are 137 worker centers, most of them in immigrant communities, scattered across the country. That's pretty amazing, actually, considering yeah. all, all of that. Well, thanks very, very much, Eric. You're it's, welcome. It's been a real pleasure to have you on Alert. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Bye. This is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And today, a whole bunch of music from Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is, uh, I, di- I, didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand anything about this man at all. And I wasn't really that much interested in his music until 
he insisted that Pete Seeger come on his TV show and it was the only way he was going to continue to do the TV show. And, of course, Pete came on and sang Waste Deep in the Big Muddy and it was a, a really big uh, really big happening in the folk world. There was Pete Seeger finally on television. And in the late 60s, it was a, it was a victory for the left that Pete Seeger could go on television. And it was kind of, it came from Johnny Cash. It was a strange thing. And I began to listen to his stuff, and I like some of it, and I don't like some of it. And I was walking through a music store not long ago, and there in the delete bin was Johnny Cash's album that he produced about Aboriginal people and, and the experience of Aboriginal people in North America. It's called Bitter Tears. The thing about it is that a lot of the production is really cheesoid country stuff that as a, as, a, as, a, as a fan, it doesn't really appeal to me a whole bunch. But when you listen to the words, you begin to really believe good things about Johnny Cash and what he believes. And so here are two really fine examples of Johnny Cash. From the Indian Reservation To the governmental school Well, they're going to educate me To the white man's golden rule And I'm learning very quickly for I've learned to be ashamed And I come when they call Billy Though I've got an Indian name And there are drums beyond the mountain Indian drums that you can't hear There are drums beyond the mountain and they're getting mighty near And when they think that they've changed me Cut my hair to meet their needs Will they think I'm white or Indian Quarter blood or just half breed Let me tell you, Mr. Teacher when you say you'll make me right In 500 years of fighting Not one Indian turned white And there are drums beyond the mountain Indian drums that you can't hear There are drums beyond the mountain and they're getting mighty near Well, you thought that I knew nothing When you brought me here to school Just another empty Indian Just America's first fool But now I can tell you stories that are burnt and dried and old But in the shadow of their telling Walks the thunder proud and bold And there are drums beyond the mountains Indian drums 
that you can't hear. There are drums beyond the mountain, and they're getting mighty near. Lone Pine and Sequoia, handsome lake and sitting bull. There's Mendes, Colorado, with his leaves so red and full. Crazy horse, the legend. Those who bit off Custer's soul, they are dead, yet they are living with the great Geronimo. And there are drums beyond the mountains, Indian drums that you can't hear. There are drums beyond the mountains, and they're getting mighty near. Well, you may teach me this land's history, but we taught it to you first. We broke your hearts and bent your journeys. Broken treaties left us cursed. Even now, you have to cheat us. Even though you think us tame, in our losing, we found proudness. In your winning, you found shame. And there are drums beyond the mountains, Indian drums that you can't hear. There are drums beyond the mountains, and they're getting mighty near. Now I will tell you, Buster. That I ain't a fan of Custer's, and the general he don't ride well anymore. To some he was a hero, but to me his score was zero, and the general he don't ride well anymore. Now Custer done his fighting without too much excitement, and the general he don't ride well anymore. General Custer come in pumping when the men were out a hunting, but the general he don't ride well anymore. With victories he was swimming, he killed children, dogs, and women, but the general he don't ride well anymore. Crazy horse sent out to call to sudden bull and gall. And the general, he don't ride well anymore. Now Custer split his men. Well, he won't do that again, 'cause the general, he don't ride well anymore. Twelve thousand warriors waited. They were unanticipated, and the general, he don't ride well anymore. It's not called an Indian victory. But a bloody massacre, and the general he don't ride well anymore. There might have been more enthusiasm if us Indians had been losing, but the general he don't ride well anymore. <laughs> 
General George A. Custer, all oh, his yellow hair had luster, but the general, he don't ride well anymore. For now the general's silent, he got barbered violent, and the general, he don't ride well anymore. Oh, the general, he don't ride well anymore. That was Johnny Cash singing Peter LaFarge's classic Custer, and before that, drums. I was down at the Ontario Council of Folk Festivals recently, and I don't know if you know about it, but basically you get into a hotel with 800 musicians, and you spend three days pretending to do business with each other, when in reality all you really want to do is hear music. It's one of the better musical events of the year in Canada, and it's one of the Canada's best-known secrets that mostly the folk community know about. I was, I ran into all kinds of amazing musicians, and I ran into two young Aboriginal musicians who just entirely blew me away. Uh, Shoshana Kish and Raven Kanatakata played together in the, under the name of Digging Roots. And these, I don't know what you call this music. This is hip-hop and rock and roots and folk and blues all mixed together and it certainly is entertaining. Give a listen to this.
acoustic folk music folks but again it's one of these things if you listen to the words you're going to be really surprised these are great writers here they are again with these hands
That was Digging Roots with These Hands. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And remember, folks, together we can change the world. And that is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world for the week of October 27, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes, and thanks for joining us. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. And of course, we'd like to thank our hosts here at the UMFM radio station here at the University of Manitoba. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com.